Hello. Well, there's only one subject we could possibly talk about in this week's podcast, and it isn't the BBC's annual report published on Tuesday. Instead, we're going to examine the so-called BBC presenter scandal in some detail, because I think there are real questions to be asked about the way the issue has been discussed and handled. And who better to do that with than one of the most astute observers of the media and public service broadcasting in particular? Stephen Barnett, Professor of Communications at the University of Westminster. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. I should say, by the way, that we're recording this on Wednesday morning, and who knows what will happen next in this story. Well, let's try and put it into some sort of proportion, this so-called BBC scandal. Steve, what is the worst that the BBC could be accused of, do you think, at the moment? The worst? The very worst, uh, I suppose, would be a cover-up of criminal activity. I mean, I, I do not believe for one second that that is what has happened. But if you're asking me to speculate about literally the worst possible scenario, it would be that they knew that there was a high-profile presenter of theirs who had engaged in something that was unlawful and either did nothing about it or covered it up. There's absolutely no evidence of that, is there? We're left with a situation, in my view, Steve, I wonder what you think, which is the worst the BBC has done here is not treat an initial complaint quickly or seriously enough. The BBC's defence is they get about 250 of these complaints running at any one time. You know, social media is bonkers. This one took too long to get to the DG. I think most people would agree that once the DG got hold of it in Thursday last week, he acted very promptly. But it seems to me that that is the only area, the way they dealt with the initial complaint, and we don't know exactly what the initial complaint was, where there's a real question about BBC behaviour. I think that's entirely right, Roger. Uh, I mean, you, know, you asked me what might be the worst possible scenario, given the evidence that we have. I find it very difficult. And, you know, I'm very happy to be a critical friend of the BBC when I think it deserves proper criticism. I really do struggle to find any evidence that there has been any improper behaviour, incompetence, undue delays. I mean, even that initial complaint, and as you say, they get hundreds of complaints every day um, about high-profile people because, you know, there are some people, some fantasists, a lot of fantasists out there who who like to make stuff up, as I'm sure you will remember from your own time at the Beeb, you know, the number of times people make complaints you know i saw so and so doing something inappropriate in the street the other day and these are quite rightly you know flagged as something serious and then there is a follow-up to say please provide us with the evidence that you say you have when the bbc gets no response to that follow-up and they then follow up with a phone call and there's no connection on the phone call it's really difficult for me to think what else should they be doing faced with that number of complaints very often in the vast majority specious and spurious so you know i i honestly struggle and the bbc does not always cover itself with glory i really do struggle to see the issues here and i actually think the bbc has behaved as far as i can tell properly in almost every respect so if we say that at the moment, anyway, it might have been a little slow. There's a question mark about how it dealt with initially, but that's about it. One of the astonishing things about this is the way in which it seems to me few people in the media have stood back and said, what is the sun doing here? 
It's making these allegations. It's providing no evidence. It's calling on the BBC to do what it is not prepared to do. After all, if we believe the Sun, it is in possession or have seen some photographs. It has seen or is in the possession of some financial records. In every other case where the Sun has gone after somebody in the past, as far as I can remember, they've put their evidence there on the front page. We have not seen their evidence even now, what, a week, almost a week after it's been put forward. What is going... Uh, two things intrigue me is why the Sun isn't doing this. And the second is why aren't people going after the Sun and saying, if you're telling the BBC to do this, do it yourself. I think that's exactly right. I think it raises huge question marks over the evidence that the Sun has and its motivations for pursuing this. I was very intrigued to listen to there was a podcast which is almost as good as yours, Roger, called The News Agents, uh, which you may be familiar with. And David Yelland, former editor of The Sun, was interviewed and was saying more or less the same thing, saying in his day, if you have a bank statement which is pretty clear evidence of sums of money being transferred. There are plenty of ways of making sure that the appropriate names aren't visible and you put it on your front page to show this is the evidence that we have. The other thing that was interesting was that he said the first story just had a few lines on the front page and that was it. There was nothing. Usually you get, you know, inside pages two to 73. You know, we follow up with our analysis. There was nothing. So the sun clearly feels it's on slightly shaky ground. But as you say, there are very few news outlets which seem to me to be following up and saying, what do we really know about this? Why is the sun not giving us more information? And frankly, let's be honest about this. There is a commercial and ideological agenda here because the sun for decades has been going after the BBC. Its proprietor, Rupert Murdoch, does not like the BBC. He's made no secret of this. He hates the license fee. And frankly, the same thing is, is, is true with the Times. Um, you know, you'll remember, I remember back in the 1980s, three consecutive Times editorials laying into the license fee as grossly unfair and aggressive, etc. So uh, to be fair to the Times, which I, I do read every day or whatever, I agree about the editorials, which still come up now and a day. And its reporting is pretty good, uh, whereas yeah. the Mail and the Telegraph have been very happy to pile into the BBC. And of course, they, they do this in part because of the response of certain people in Parliament. Now, when this story broke, we had the Pretty Patels of this world, the Lee Andersons, the Nadine Doris, a whole raft of uh, right-wing Tories kicking the BBC immediately and saying, this man, if it is a man, name must be given. Without any, again, you know, apparent concern about privacy or whatever, without knowing any of the facts. Indeed, unfortunately, you see the shadow, I think, Labour minister saying the BBC must put its house in order. So once again, as we've often had in the past, Parliament pours, I would say, petrol on the flames and doesn't bother to see whether there are, you know, there are any flames, really. So then the newspapers, they've, they've got this trigger response in Parliament. So they're off again on the next level of the story, aren't they? Yeah. And, and that is a classic kind of flow of narrative that has happened in the past. You run a story because it suits your agenda, which may or may not have a flimsy background to it. But you then find what I prefer to call the useful idiots who are always happy to follow the same agenda, who have the same agenda, who don't like the BBC, who've always been anti-BBC and are always prepared to jump on a, a, an anti-BBC bandwagon without 
sitting back and reflecting. And I think uh, I'm afraid you will always find people in Parliament on almost any subject who will follow an agenda that actually is aligned with their views without actually thinking about the consequences. And I, I think that's that's a shame. And then the talk shows pick it up. And then, of course, it's fantastic. You know, a headline which goes BBC sex scandal cover up, which some of them will, you know, and household name and who is it? Social media then takes off. Everybody, uh, no people don't seem to realise that when they publish something uh, on social media, they are actually publishing something, but never mind. So that all takes off. And then you get the demand that the name should be published. And then the BBC is, is, is starts to think how it should report this. Now, I really admire, on the one hand, the, the way the BBC News has dealt with this. I'm not sure there's another news organisation in the world that would do it. But on the other hand, it keeps running it at the top of its agenda. Hold on, there's Ukraine coming on. This whether or not Ukraine should be a member of NATO. There is this riots in Israel. There are a real problem about uh, with Nottingham Healthcare Trust. There are a raft of stories. And the BBC almost self-flagellates on this one, doesn't it? And it also gives too much prominence, you could argue, to the story. I think that's absolutely right, Roger. I mean, last night, and this is the, you know, the second night of the story running, 13 minutes, the, the first 13 minutes of the news at 10, which is the news bulletin. I mean, I know that I, I didn't look at the six, which I think is regarded as the flagship bulletin, but certainly the second most watched news bulletin in the country is the 10 o'clock news. Nearly half of that bulletin was devoted to this story. And I'm sorry, it just does not deserve that. I mean, you know, you mentioned Ukraine. There is also the fact that we're now talking about the hottest month of the year for the second year, second year running. There are real issues about floods worldwide because of and climate change. As you say, there's there's Ukraine, there's the NATO summit. There are really big issues going on out there. And as a responsible news broadcaster, I would have thought the BBC has a duty to actually look beyond this story and think about the bigger stories that are actually affecting people in their everyday lives. This has no meaning to people in their everyday lives. Yes, I can see it's of interest to the public, but I do think there's an obsession almost within the BBC with covering itself and falling over backwards to demonstrate that they're not afraid it verges on the self-indulgent do you think i think it i think that's it or the self-obsessed i think both adjectives i think are now true i think it's self-indulgent and i think it's self-obsessive and it's self-indulgent to the point of actually acting counter to the bbc's proper news values which should be to think about stories that are important not just stories that generate ratings or you know people are they think people are talking about it's a very media focused actually quite parochial story which they seem to be obsessed with and and sometimes i actually wonder whether you know some of this presenter's colleagues you know just dislike him so much that they're actually pushed to, to spend more time on this i don't know i've i've honestly find it baffling and it's got out of all proportion now of course it's difficult to remember at the heart of all this clearly are well it may be tragedies too big a word but we've clearly got a family involved in the first complaint where the allegations anyway i think most people accept that the young person involved is an addict there clearly are great differences in the family there's an estrangement there so there's all of that, which is potentially a tragedy. There is, of course, the family of this presenter. Well, you could say that's presumably the presenter's responsibility, but still, 
you know, what on earth must it be like for them? And so we lose sight of that. Yeah. And then, of course, we losing sight that we hit the privacy laws. And then we hit that wider argument where people will try and use this case for or against the privacy law. That's another reason why this sort of takes up. And, it, and I wonder what you think about the way in which the law is always trying to catch up in this area, whether in the age of social media and what's going on, privacy laws are indeed possible or necessary or desirable. I think they're even more necessary, actually, and even more desirable, partly for the reasons you've just given. There are human beings involved here, and those human beings, not only their own feelings, but their families, etc. And if someone does not want to be outed, unless there is an overriding public interest, the law is perfectly clear that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy until such time as you are charged by the police. And that seems to be to be entirely appropriate. And I know the argument. I understand the argument that, oh, come on. Yeah, that names are out there on social media. We all know who it is. We all know who we're talking about. Actually, there is something very different from something being out on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and someone's name being all over the TV screens, the radio, the newspaper headlines, front pages, even today in an age of social media. And I'll just give you one brief story. You may remember a few years ago, there was an anonymous story about a married couple engaged in a threesome. The press wanted to name them. Uh, I think it's PJS. It went to court as PJS v. Um, one of the papers. And what the Supreme Court said was, it doesn't really matter what is out there on social media. The mainstream media will still magnify these names out of all proportion. And that is why they upheld the right of privacy. Every single year since that case, I have asked my students, 50 or 60 media savvy students, to put up their hands if they know the names of the very well-known married couple involved. Over the last seven or eight years, not a single one has been able to name those people. They, all of them would know the names had they been available on mainstream media. So my point is, these rules not only matter, but they count. They make a difference. And they make a difference to the lives of those people that you're talking about, those human beings who have families, have feelings, and deserve the privacy that the law gives them. Now, I think it's probably clear from what we've seen, whether or not any criminal offence has been committed or not, that the behaviour of the presenter involved is such that he will not uh, reappear in this present form and so on, and that might be the right thing to do. But the BBC is genuinely in a difficult position here now with the law. Until the police decide whether they are going to formally investigate, until the legal process is completed, the BBC's ability to act here is severely constrained. It said it had to suspend its uh, investigation. Now, to some people who don't know the law, um, they'd perhaps think that's rather convenient for the BBC. Actually, you could argue it actually increases the BBC's difficulties. But there's no doubt, is there, that that's a genuine legal problem for the BBC. It does now have no alternative but to pause its own internal investigation. That's absolutely right. It has no choice. I don't think the police have ordered them. I think they've simply requested 
But I, I mean, once you get a request from the police to pause your investigation, I don't think you have any choice. And I think this is, you know, I know some people are saying maybe the BBC will breathe a sigh of relief. I actually think for Tim Davy, this is a real problem because what he wants to do is to get out there as soon as possible. What actually did happen? The questions that you asked at the top of the program, uh, what was the nature of the complaint? Uh, was there an adequate response? Was it fast enough? Are the protocols that are in place correct? Do they need changing, adapting, updating? Those are really important questions. And I'm sure Tim Davey really wants to get to the bottom of that as soon as possible. And I think that police request makes it more difficult. And looking forward, with the moving into the age of deepfake videos of AI or whatever, these sorts of problems are going to get more and more difficult for broadcasters, aren't they? Because they could be handed videos which are almost totally, well, are convincing and yet are fake. So broadcasters are going to have to up their game, aren't they, in terms of scrutinising the origin of a lot of this material. I was thinking exactly that when, you know, the, the, the son talks about the evidence that was presented. I can absolutely imagine a scenario where someone creates a video, a photo of someone high, someone high profile in a deeply compromising position and shows this to the BBC or what other organisation they might work for as evidence. And all of a sudden there is a massive investigation. They're suspended from their work. They're told that we have to look into these allegations and they are completely baseless. Or even worse, they come from somebody with a grudge or a, some kind of fantasist who is, uh, has, just, just wants to make life really, really difficult for that individual. And I, you're right, they are going to have to find ways of scrutinising that evidence that perhaps we haven't even thought about yet. And finally, Steve, when people have asked me occasionally, is this a massive one of the great BBC scandals? Will the DG fall? All of that. It's terrible, isn't it? I mean, there's a big storm here. But, I mean, in a year's time, and we don't know, of course, what we'll find out in the end, I don't think this, in a substantial sense, will have been a great BBC scandal. I don't think this Director-General will be, or shouldn't anyway, have his position threatened by this, unless something more, far more substantial is revealed. How do you think, on the basis of what we know now, this will be regarded in a, a few months' time? There's a hostage to fortune. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I'm prepared to speculate on that basis. I think your analysis is exactly right. I think, you know, compared to some of the scandals that we've seen in the past, or, the, or crises, I think, that we've seen in the past, the Hutton affair and, you know, the, the real lives, etc., where there, there were real existential threats to the BBC. This is not up there with those. Uh, absolutely not. I, and I think what we'll find out is the BBC did behave appropriately. There is one individual who, you know, will clearly come under greater scrutiny, may well have behaved inappropriately, if nothing else. And, you know, we'll have to face the consequences of that. But I do not see this as an existential threat to the BBC. And I, I do hope, I really hope that the one thing we take away from this is let us remember the commercial agenda of newspapers that have for decades disliked and threatened the BBC and want to see it dismantled. And I would really like to see this particular crisis put into that context and that perspective. Professor Stephen Barnett, thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Please do support our journalism. It's less than a cup of coffee at £2 per month, which also gives you access to a weekly newsletter. 
You can find the link on our website and in the description of this program on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. Next week, we'll be talking to the journalist Samira Ahmed, who fronts my old sister program, Newswatch. Please let us know any questions you would like us to put to her. And if you don't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It's a good egg production. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>